What's going on, everybody? June is pretty much over. Happy Pride to everyone that celebrates that. And we and they man, they just picked the end of the month, the halfway point of the year to just friggin' dump all of the content on us completely. So mm. we have got uh, Dustin is back. We're here to break down a lot of things. We got the Idol. We got yeah. new season of Black Mirror, new Wes oh. Anderson. I'm yeah. a Virgo, no hard yeah. feelings. Yeah. We got a new Marvel show. We got season two of the bear and just so, and then at the end of this, we're going to be breaking down real quickly. We're just going to be recapping for you guys, our top 10 favorite movies so far at the halfway point of the year. It's going to be a lot to talk about, but it's going to be a worthwhile conversation. Uh, anyways, so all of that and more on tonight's episode of the talking TV podcast. Yeah. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Talking TV podcast. This is what we are sitting at roughly just about halfway through 2023, and it has been an interesting year for content, to say the least. I'd like to think that this year, as opposed to last year, where it was pretty heavily skewed towards TV and streaming, we've seen a little bit of a bounce back. The movies have sort of started crawling their way back. We finally have an f- official summer movie season for the first time in three years. The quality, unfortunately, still does not seem to be there, I would say, overall. And while we We've certainly had less TV shows. The TV shows have still just been kicking ass. But in the wake of Succession and Barry ending a couple weeks ago, we've just had a slew of shows that have hit just in this past month. Some new, some returning. So we're going to kick off the conversation tonight with uh, with a show Dustin just finished the most recent episode of. It has kind of been the in-between show for a couple things right now for HBO. That is Sam Levinson and Abel Tesfaye, a.k.a. The Weeknd's debut show, The Idol, starring Lily Rose Depp. So Dustin, you just finished episode four of this show. I believe this is only supposed to be five episodes of miniseries. There's a little bit of controversy as there always is in Hollywood, which is still hilarious to me. I just point. learned that like two minutes ago that it was yeah. like five episodes. Yeah, which it's well because it's annoying. It was originally supposed to be six. Yeah, because it says H- it on the Wikipedia that it was it was originally supposed to be six. Yeah, well, more than likely what happened was is they they were trying to figure out their release schedule for all their other shows that are coming out. Mm. And they probably, like, I, I don't know. They, they were probably, like, hoping that, like, Righteous Gemstones would be the one that, like, branches the summer. And then you have winning oh, time. I got to watch in, that after. At the end of, at the, end of the summer. Yeah, with, <laughs> there's so much freaking content. Damn it's like it. how it was last year. But so the Idol obviously gained a lot of controversy based off that first trial, just based off the behind-the-scenes stories. It was originally being conceived by Amy Simons with The weekend, And then I believe that she was let go. Her Basically, her entire creative vision was scrapped when the weekend decided to bring on Sam Levinson to direct every episode and I mean just his his style well, always Sam Levinson's show but she was brought on originally to direct the series but um then the weekend pretty much came out in public and or this got out into the public and he and he pretty much said that yeah it's starting to take a little bit too much of a female's perspective <laughs> which Supposedly, what he said, even though it's about a pop star, right? Even though it's about yeah. a female pop star, which that's one of the that's one of the craziest yeah. takes that I've ever heard. I'm like, so, are you even, do you even know what you're making? And just clearly. really, what's the fact that it's just Sam Levinson and he's just everything he touches is just like controversial. It yeah. feels like because he he's a little repetitive for what he does, and all of his shit looks great and everything. I just don't think he's as great of a writer 
as he thinks he is. But I got to say, Dominic, this is the best thing he's made. Yeah, I the agree show, with that. So far is the best thing he's made. And since we're pretty much almost done with it now that I just realized it's only five episodes, was the fifth episode going to be two hours? Probably. Uh, they might like just an hour and a half. They do that shit all the time now. Who knows, who knows anymore, right? Yeah, who knows? The finale, I mean, the finale of The Wire season four was like an hour 20. Yeah. So yeah, like, even they were they've been doing that for a while. They've been doing that for a long time. I I, yeah. I think the, I want to say the first one was the Sopranos oh, fourth yeah. season finale, but even that one's not like Definitely. a full hour twenty. I think that one's only like an hour fifteen or something like that. But yeah, no, they've yeah. been doing that for a while. I mean, Succession. I mean, Game of Thrones last season, the last four episodes were pretty much like movie line. Like the long night is a full eighty two well, minutes. I'm like, that's movie and line. Strain, of course, Stranger Things. Of course, Stranger like, Things. The, the last like most of those episodes of the last part of the second or the you know the second part of the last season was just most of those episodes were like an hour and a half they only it's put out two episodes funny. they only put out two episodes for the second half of season four and that dropped the first weekend of july last year and the last episode yeah, everyone really the joke was was yeah. longer than the than the thor movie that came out a week later because yeah, the, right? the stranger things finale was two and a half hours long and mm-hmm. the thor exactly and, and the thor movie was a straight hour 58 but going back to the idol i, I agree with what you said about sam levinson as far as this being the best Thing that he's directed and i think it, the, the the key to that being in something that you said earlier which is that he didn't write this he only directed it and i think that's the key phrase because sam levinson is an incredible technician again the way that he shoots it no he wrote um, this he co-wrote this but that's the thing you know co-wrote it this isn't like fully originally oh, like, like, okay. the difference to me between something like this versus something like euphoria is that euphoria is like entirely his baby like he has well, like other co-writers on for the first season but the second season he shot and directed that he shot and wrote directed that thing entirely by himself and i'm pretty sure he did Dominic, that also i hate to to pop your bubble but like i know he took over the creative hall after amy simons but it's i'm looking at it right now teleplay by sam levinson he has people on the story helping him the week the weekend and this other guy reza fahim but other than that he's writing the shit i don't know what to tell you yeah, well, in that case, then I'm really lost because I, I I don't know. Is he just like grown as a creative then as far as it's being? Because like I'll, I'll, let me a little bit. Yeah, because it's a little raw. I think the, the less he the more he moves away from teenagers, the, the yeah. maybe the more successful he is. The yeah. more he moves away from Zendaya, to be quite frank. From the, yeah. He needs to let her work with other people. Yeah, no, uh, I agree <laughs> with that. Because I mean, essentially the consensus being that like Sam Levinson – it's almost always like he stumbles upon something like actually interesting in his work where his his work is so stylistically and aesthetically pleasing and interesting that it I feel like the biggest problem that I have with Euphoria is that it that that distracts people specifically again the Gen Zers who it is very problematically targeted at from the fact that that show is actually kind of really like shallow and empty and doesn't and isn't actually saying anything deep uh, other than just like yeah teenagers are fucked up but 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 it's over like shit at right it's like Degrassi opera. it's like a Degrassi that looks great right and like- but on top of that it's over glorifying the shit out of it because it makes it look everything in that sh- even even though it's portraying like real problems in a real way it's it's over glorifying the shit out of it by making it look as cool as possible and the fact that it has started like so many trends as a result of like how many people are directly like I don't know I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know okay, if well, he's well, glorifying so, every like well, everything in his show. I I just think he's just a little he might be a little too overzealous as a as a filmmaker. He might uh be more unintentionally over the top than he realizes with his dialogue and material. 
uh, but the way he shoots everything is fantastic. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it just no, I'm not, no disputing that. But like when it comes to the characters, it's just like he doesn't know how to write realistic no. high school. But he, really, the, the the success of that show is mainly due to the cinematography and the acting. Yes, most of the acting. Most that, of that the makes, that, that makes it like, convincing. Well, yeah, because I don't want to kiss everyone's ass on that show, no. you know. But like, there are some really, you know, underrated, uh, under the under the radar performances that don't get enough credit just because Zendaya screams a couple times at her mom and her sister hides in the corner crying. But uh, yeah, like Angus Cloud, what a fucking breakthrough yes. find right there. Yeah who we'll talk about later with our Tribeca movies. Yes. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, also Sydney Sweeney and Alexa Demi, who everything they've been in, they've shown more range to me than Zendaya has personally. And Zendaya, I don't, I I don't think she has the hardest part on that show. Contrary to belief of everybody else. I feel like everyone else seems to have like a harder job to do on that job on that show. Like Jacob Elordi. Fantastic. Like you wouldn't have, uh, the fact that you had people yeah. coming out of that show feeling sorry for a character like Nate Jacobs, who is a psychopath, sociopath character. Yeah, yeah. Like, it is insane yeah. to me. It, like, attributes so much to Alordi's performance. Alordi and Maud Apatow as well. Those are probably, like, those are easily like, right? the top five for me, along with the three that you just mentioned, as far as breakout, yeah. like, really excellent actors from the show. But I think how that kind of ties into the idol as well. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like since, like, now that he's, like, getting away from Zendaya and away from, um, Oh, and away from kind of like the high school aspects aspects of it and like actually getting into like the dark side of show business in a weird way it's like a perfect place to lend his talents because in a way i can kind of see that like the weekend has like a really really specific vision for the show but in a way it's almost like the weekends what he wants to focus on are like more problematic because i feel because the only thing that i can get from the weekend's take on this is that he just really wants to have sex with johnny depp's daughter and i feel like it's almost like the sam levinson aspects that are like showing like the more traumatic elements of like what it's like to be like specifically a young pop star in this you business see, that's what i think this show is kind of full of shit about just because i don't think it, this is the weekend I think the weekend is in charge of his character and his character alone. I feel like any satire or any substance we get from this show is coming from Sam Levinson. I really do. Really? Okay. Just like maybe with some of the music stuff, like, you know, and, and some of this show definitely involves like her making music and it's kind of the more generic parts of the show that I could probably attribute to the weekend. Because what the fuck does the weekend know about writing? You know what I <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't like, know. I don't Sam know. at least has written some good shit in some of the, you know, in some of Euphoria and some of his movies. Like some there's like sprinkles of talent with Sam Levinson. He's just overindulgent. But I definitely think this project is showing his talent the best because it feels the most authentic to what he's trying to say. With a, it's a definitely a little exaggerated. Uh, in Sam Levinson fashion, but it's not as obnoxious. There's right. elements to each of these episodes where I'd be like, yeah, that's a little over the top, but it's definitely, I'm not rolling my eyes as much as I am during an episode of Euphoria. Right. Or like laughing unintentionally like I am in Euphoria. Like I'm genuinely laughing uh, with this show. Like I, I, I think The weekend, contrary to police, other belief, I might shit on him in any other context. He's pretty good on this show. Yeah. I'm sorry. He knows how to play like a sketchy, like, 
he thinks he's so intimidating, but he's kind of a joke. But like, there's definitely some danger that like he is a dangerous person, but he's not intimidating. And I don't think the show is really thinking that he is. He's just more of like a leech. He's a leech who thinks he's controlling. And I'm definitely familiar with people like that. And, you know, yeah. in, previously in my life, but like, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think he's doing a good job on this show. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not displeased with this performance. And, and I, and to be fair, I went in with very low expectations. That yeah. clip that they released with about him shitting on Rolling Stone. And uh, of course his little role as himself in uncut gems and he was on an episode of american dad it's just like he has the most robotic voice in the world but in this show that voice is like he he's not doing his regular speaking voice so it's like he's definitely playing a character but it, it feels a little bit more transformative than of course uncut gems or any of his other right. work as an actor but i i don't know I'm, I'm having a good time with it it's definitely the campiest probably the campiest part of the show but i think he's or at least Sam Levinson, at the very least, knows how to direct that performance. Yeah, I agree. It, it's one of the few yeah. instances of like a really good meeting of two mm-hmm. artistic talents that are that are both very skilled in what they do individually and actually complement each other pretty well in order to create something that I don't know if this is going to make my list of favorite shows of the year, but it's definitely yeah. one that I'm glad I'm worth watching. It's definitely one that I can tell that like, oh, this is one of the, one of the few instances of like we were talking about earlier this week uh, on our Steve Carell podcast, another instance of like critics just immediately wanted to shit can something before it even comes out. And so far it seems to be beating it because I mean, I don't, the, the, the sad thing is I don't know how many people personally are watching this, but like, I'm hoping that people will discover this. I, I think it's a good find for sure. It's so oh, getting pretty good ratings, and I, I, and you know, we have to wait until the finale next week. I can't right. believe I'm saying that. I didn't even think there was going to be a finale next week. I thought it was two weeks from now. Mm. I'll, I'll move on, but just the fact that we're like uh, going to get the finale next week is that it just depends on how that episode ends. Is it going to be like a definitive end, or there could there be a you know a second season? A we don't know. Little lies. It's the know? thing that pisses me off the most about HBO is the fact that because of the state of television right now and the state of people's viewing habits is the fact that see is the fact that now whenever we get a brand new show from them and I feel like this is exclusive to HBO but also like it's a result of streaming as well where it's like we we never even know if we're gonna get another season or not. It's like the green light something. It's like and ever since Watchmen, it's like could it be a miniseries? Could it get a second season? We don't know. Guess we'll find out. And well, just, I it, like it, that Lindelof from the jump was pretty much like no. This is a miniseries. I, I, I'm pretty sure this is like a miniseries because he definitely by the end, but by, by the end for ended, sure, he was like, he was "Yeah, to- I don't want." Like he was toying around a little bit at the beginning to like spark up some interest, but but what once yeah. we got like it's about like episode seven, he was like, "Yeah, th- this is all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything." Yeah, else. exactly. Yeah. All but, right. Uh, yeah, so- I'm, I'm definitely enjoying this show though. I'm, I, I like that he, he did something I liked and uh, it didn't disappoint me. I thought it yes. was going to be the laughing stock of the summer. Yeah, I agree. And it is so far completely turned around. All right, moving on. Our next thing. Our next thing. Black Mirror season six. Uh, This is something that I was not expecting to come back ever after Charlie Brooker admitted that like he was stepping away, that we didn't need another season of Black Mirror during COVID. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, after largely being disappointed with season five, which was the with the three episodes that dropped back in summer of 2019, that being striking Viper Smithereens and Rachel Jack and Ashley too, I understood where Charlie Brooker was trying to move the show as far as Okay, he did because real life had done a pretty good job of catching up to Black Mirror. He did not want the show to continue to be an allegory. He wanted to more so focus 
focus on uh, the 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 effects that it was having, how the technology was changing people and society. And I think that while season five was a litmus test as far as how that goes, and I think largely it was kind of a failure. I didn't really like a whole lot of those episodes. In fact, I thought one episode was just a straight up failure. I have to say that this season overall has largely been, I think, much better at trying to get at. Uh, what, what what it is that Charlie Brooker is trying to achieve now with the show, where we have five brand new episodes, two of which try to dabble a little bit in the supernatural, which I'm a little bit confused at because Black Mirror has always been very straight-laced in sci-fi. And as far as crossing over into supernatural, there's this thing in media for the longest time where science fiction and supernatural, whenever they cross over, it doesn't exactly mesh at that well. And uh, so, so that that is why the latter two episodes, Maisie Day and Demon Seventy Nine, are <clears throat> slightly confusing to me because Maisie Day starts as a an attempt at a statement on early two thousands like uh, paparazzi uh, critique, and then ends as a werewolf episode. It's actually really confusing and kind of comes out of nowhere. But the that's first the one with Zazzy Beats. That's right? the one with Zazzy Beats. Ironically mm -hmm. enough, you know, and as as if yeah. that episode as if that episode already didn't have little enough going for it as it is. That's um, a skip. But Did you I hear she wants to play Catwoman. Of, of course she does. Uh, I know, right? That's what I said. Of course she fucking does. As, of as, she does. as if she wasn't already trying to be a, uh, as if she already wasn't like a like doing enough insult to like trying to be like a less talented Halle Berry. Now she wants to do Halle Berry's worst, like most laughing stock role. Like, she come on, just Zazie. Be sarcastic the whole time and be a badass. Of course, you know what I mean. Of like, course, because that's what she does. The, exactly. the irony being that, like, I know you're not a fan of her Deadpool two, but I feel like the irony being that like Deadpool two was like one of the few instances where she wasn't trying to be sarcastic and somehow it was worse. Okay. There, there were like a couple sarcastic of that whole movie. <laughs> I think it back. I think it back. Anyways, so but I will say back to Black Mirror. The first three episodes, Joan is awful, Lock Henry, and um Beyond the Sea, I thought were really, really good and really interesting. Oh, Joan is okay. awful is a really fun take on uh on streaming and the streaming algorithm and kind of what we what what it is that we like to watch, where the whole thing essentially is where the, this office worker played by Annie Murphy it discovers a show on their streaming service called Streamberry that is like mimicking her life like beat for beat but it's played by Selma Hayek uh the, the version of her that's in, in the streaming service and then discovers that um what's it called that, that 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 when she signed up for Streamberry she signed a contract that will use her likeness in order to essentially like generate versions of her life and that this is apparently going for everybody that signed on to Streamberry but Selma Hayek gets involved as well because she realizes that the Streamberry is also using an unlicensed artificial deep fake of her like she's not even starring in the show she just lended her uh and like what's crazy about this episode is it's like with the advances in AI yeah, you that's just almost, in the like, news. And you can almost like see that happening. The only thing, the only weakness that this episode had going for it is that the the twist ending, they try to do the whole like rabbit hole inception like thing within a thing within a thing kind of a kind of a story ending and it gets really confusing where they have to break into the streamberry quarters and destroy the supercomputer that's navigating it, it kind of ends dumb but i will say that like as yeah. far as actually like trying to make some sort of a statement on like kind of our obsession with media i thought it was pretty entertaining and then moving it like about cancel culture that one not really not as much as it not as much as you would think uh, okay yeah, and then episode two, Lock Henry, is surprisingly technology-free. That one is about, it's uh, Myella Herald from Industry is okay. dating this Scottish guy, and they go to the Scottish countryside to make a documentary, only to, to then discover this horrific story of this awful, grisly set of murders that happened there that they then start making a true crime documentary for. They attempt to, like, sell it out, and then there's some secrets about that time that are revealed. That one is surprisingly technology-free, but the cool thing about that one is it's more of, like, a statement on true crime, and it's just, like, a really interesting and an engaging mystery that actually has, like, a really 
really, really fucked up twist ending. I won't spoil it here because it's so good that like this, if I had to pick a favorite episode, it would probably be this one, Lock Henry episode two, mostly because it's the most technology devoid. It's very antiquated. It's very much about like, you know, just a couple of college kids like trying to, it, it, it's, it's making statements on like glamorization of, her, of, of real world tragedies uh, for purposes of watching. So that one I would probably have to say is the apex. And then beyond the sea episode three, which is a full-length movie episode. It's about an hour 20 with Aaron Paul and Josh Hartnett. That one is the one that was definitely the most interesting and engaging from a character standpoint. But I feel, and, and the technology itself, as far as how they utilize it was interesting. But I feel like that one, it's interesting because I feel like it either needed to be, I feel like in a way it needed to be a little bit longer because the way that that story is set up, you essentially have this setup where Josh Hartnett and Aaron Paul are astronauts, but there's this technology that allows them to beam their conscious down to robot replicas on Earth. So they're able to, um, you know, still live their lives on Earth separate from the ship, but it's known on Earth. It's in an alternate version of 1969, but it's known on Earth that, um, what's it called? That, uh, that they are robot replicas and it's not actually them. And what happens is there's this grisly tragedy that happens, which Josh Hartnett's family on earth is killed by a series of, uh, of, um, of, oh my God, what's it called? The Manson stand-ins, uh, led by Rory Culkin, who's kind of the Manson stand-in. And so basically as a result, Aaron Paul starts letting Josh Hartnett's, uh, astronaut use his body as a, um, what's it called, as a conduit to, you know, to experience life on Earth so that he doesn't go insane in space. And of course, this leads to Hart and it starts hitting on Aaron Paul's wife, played by Kate Mara. And that's kind of where it gets a little bit predictable because Kate Mara, I don't think gets enough characterization. And Josh Hartnett kind of does a really quick flip of a switch where it's like, he's a, you know, he's a pretty like, you know, he's like, like Captain America basically in the beginning. But then once he loses his family, he kind of goes down a dark path pretty quickly. And like, you understand where it goes, but it almost happens a little bit too quickly where you almost want a little bit more development. And then it ends with this, another, awful like shocker ending that is just like com kind of completely out of nowhere and then as for the last episode demon 79 this is the one that like it's not as bad as Maisie day which is the zazzy beats werewolf episode but it's also like not quite good because it's like that this girl essentially summons a genie who's like an evil genie and then like starts like causing her to like like, like commit murders for him and it's something and it ends with like nuclear apocalypse codes it's really confusing it's supposed to be making a statement on like how evil is evil if you're murdering people who deserve to be murdered. So, like I said, the last two episodes kind of lose me. But the first three, pretty solid as far as a good Black Mirror season. In terms of where I would rank this overall in Black Mirror seasons, the first two are still pretty impeccable. Um, I like season three a lot. Season four, not a fan. Seasons four and five, not a fan of. Big fan of the interactive movie Bandersnatch. And so I would probably nestle this right in between seasons three and four. As far as uh, as far as Black Mirror overall, I don't know, D Dustin. I, I know that you and I have talked personally on Black Mirror, but like just for the viewing audience out there, what what is your thought on Black Mirror in general as a show, as a concept? Uh, I like it. I admire it. I respect it. It's not always my thing. That's fair, especially because like the end because obviously it is um what's it called? It is uh what's the word I'm looking for that I can never fucking remember the one where it's like because every episode is a different story set within a different universe uh it, it can kind of cause the overall quality of the show to vary depending on the the strength of of uh of each individual episode and i will say that the dip in quality did unfortunately happen when netflix acquired it. netflix still put forward some good and interesting episodes but i think the increase in episode count allowed for them to maybe not put as much effort and quality into each episode as they did with those first two seasons which were nice tight lean channel 4 british 
Um, only three episodes each. Um, I, I even though even the weaker episodes for me of those first two seasons still had an era of authenticity that were that were put into them that I just feel like are not quite there for the Netflix episodes. So that's really my take. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I, like I, even 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 when it's largely disappointing, like seasons four and five were. I, I never regret watching a season of Black Mirror because I feel like I'm always I know I'm always going to get something interesting and like Charlie Brooker's got a very unique and interesting take on technology and its effects on us and how we've evolved and especially since how much reality itself has evolved to reflect the show like literally to the point where I'm like I remember watching stuff on Black Mirror like almost ten years ago when it first aired and now seeing where we've come as far as like you know like like we have sex dolls now and self-driving cars and artificial intelligence is literally a thing and obviously the way that reality tv and our viewing habits like every almost everything that's happened in the show the show has predicted and i'm still interested to see if they do more episodes and to see where it goes in terms of evolving to match our technology habits because it only ever goes forward so the next one I'm only going to talk about for a little bit because I got to say I only we only the first episode only came out and it's been a little bit Marvel's definitely pacing themselves for sure ever since kind of the debacle of last year when they were losing all that money and so this is the first Marvel that we've gotten since Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three Secret Invasion this was posed as the this is the first TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe since last year's um, She Hulk Attorney at Law which was largely a disappointment as myself and uh, you and a lot of other people have made clear. Um, this was supposed to be, quote-unquote, a return to the MCU of old. This is more of a grounded, uh, you know, Earth-based mystery. We don't have any cosmic elements. Uh, we got Nick Fury back as he's investigated the uh, very popular uh, comic ba uh, based off the very popular Marvel comic line, Secret Invasion, in which the scrolls start uh, beaming down to Earth and infiltrating the human population in order to take it over. There's a slight caveat in the show because since this is technically the first direct follow-up to Captain Marvel, the fact that the scrolls are the good guys, technically, only now they've retrofitted it in order to uh, in order to fit into the current narrative of the MCU where, oh, there's a, another sect of scrolls that are mad because Nick Fury and Captain Marvel couldn't find them a home, so now they're going to infiltrate and take over the Earth. And I got to say, after watching another episode... Yeah, these Marvel TV shows got to go. I'm sorry. For the most part, their hate ratio has been incredibly low. Even the good ones have been unbelievably mediocre. Like Loki and Moon Knight, as entertaining as those were, are still relatively mediocre. I think the I like only Hawkeye one... for the most part. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's what I mean. And, and the problem there is that because Hawkeye is largely not taking itself as seriously as those other shows. It's like mm. the problem with Marvel in general. I feel like is that they have they 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 have really really lost. Um, th their ability to kind of mesh and blend between tones between the, the the funny parts and the more dramatic storytelling. And now it's like they can't really figure out if their stories are supposed to be important, if they're supposed to build towards anything. And this is just the latest example where I'm one episode in and I'm like, the, the biggest takeaway for me was it's like, oh no, they killed Maria Hill. And like, that's the only takeaway. I'm like, I, I don't care, really care about the fact that Fury's been up on a satellite for however many years it's been. I don't care about this new sect of scrolls. Like, like, there's nothing that's really investing, that's really getting me invested in, despite the fact that this is based, this is another thing based off of a massively popular Marvel comic. Like, Secret Invasion is up there with, like, some one of, like, the top five biggest Marvel comic lines, along lines like Age of Ultron, like Civil War, like, um, like House of M, like, one of these other majorly popular runs. And the fact that, again, this is the best thing, and, of course, you have the showrunners that are coming out being like, oh, Marvel instructed us not to read any comics that this is based off of because it's like 
okay, because God forbid we actually adapt this from the source material, but I don't know. D Dustin, what's been your stance on the MCU recently in general? Like, what, what are your thoughts on, like, where we are now with Secret Invasion? It's all over the place. I couldn't, I, I didn't even finish. I didn't even bother finish this episode. Uh, what happened at the at the last, in, in the last 10 minutes of this episode? I didn't Maria even... Hill dies. That's literally it. That oh, last... fucking really? That's when yeah. something happened? Jesus Christ. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, I may have accidentally spoiled it for you. Yeah, no, they're, oh. they're, they're trying to infiltrate the thing where the scrolls are placing the bombs. And then the lead scroll, the Kingsley That's Benadir funny. scroll. Literally shapeshifts into Nick Fury and then shoots Hill and kills Kobe her. Kobe Smolders got killed off? Yep. yep. Oh, God. Yeah. What shall she ever do? Oh, I think she'll be just fine. Really? I think she'll be just fine. But Hopefully yeah. she gets Catwoman instead of Zazzy <laughs> B. I'm kidding. Fight it but back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, Mar Marvel's been a mess recently. It, 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 it's no, no, Marvel has been less than marvelous as of late. Yeah, it really has. Like, there's mm. been, there's really been nothing invigorating. Like, it, it's bad because every time you get, like, a good movie, there's always a caveat. Like, No Way Home, it's the Spider-Man nostalgia. Wakanda Forever, it's because they lost Chadwick and they wanted to do him right. That Guardians is a good great. movie, though. And, no, it is, for sure. But, yeah. like, would it have been as good if Chadwick was still alive? I mean, yeah, I'd uh, like yeah, to think so. Probably. I'd like to think so. But, um, and then Guardians 3, because of, uh, you know, that that's Gunn's swung song to the MCU and, and with his time and the characters and kind of like his FU to Marvel by like basically saying that, yeah, I can, I, I can make a better, you guys tried to shit can me and now I'm going to make the best movie and leave you guys with nothing. And I got to say, now that those three movies are over with, I mean, I, my, my, my confidence in them, which has already been shaken a lot, is just going down and down and down. We're, we're, we're two, almost three years into their post-COVID run. And I got to say, I have not been impressed with a lot of their titles. I, I'm really not Dude, that impressed with this. You can't wait for the Marvels, bro. The Marvels oh, is so your favorite movie of the year. I'm dude. so excited for the Marvels when they took and, – and I think the most insulting thing about that trailer was that they took uh, probably the best sequence from Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the hallway mm -hmm. fight scene set to the Beastie Boys song, and then mm -hmm. just straight ripped another Beastie Boys song for the trailer. And it's one thousand times shittier. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of. They'll where play another. Going. They'll play another No Doubt song in the climax. Of probably, this movie. probably. Yeah. Like, like it'll be another. Sorry, like I'm not home right now. I'm walking in a spider web. So you're just gonna hear that in the third the act. Yo, oh, absolutely. Like yeah, it's it's gonna be terrible. So yeah, Secret Invasion. We gave our five seconds on it. Cool. Uh, I'm done. Uh, we'll move on now. Uh, we're, we're, yeah, which I'm like, they can't even do Ben Mendelsohn right in the show. Oh, it's so tragic. First of all, why is he allowed to be Australian on that show? Right? Like, <laughs> no one else is he has Australian. To do an American, he has to do, but also, it's the fact that he has to do an American accent for literally every single thing that he's been in since, like, his major, major he breakout in The Dark Knight too. Rises. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but, and I've literally only heard him do an Australian in accent in one other thing besides this, which is uh, which Killing is killing himself. Off like, yeah. It's the only thing. Everything else he's done in American accent. In. So it's like, yeah, this is the one. It's like he's doing Australian. Part, yeah. Yeah. I like put it. I already unless forgot. It's like, unless it's like a British or Australian movie, then yeah. he'll have his accent. Well, right? yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Anyways, that uh, th we did our five seconds, our obligatory five seconds for Marvel. So now let's take a quick break from the TV and go into and go into the two movies that released this weekend because we did get two movies this weekend. So Asteroid City, um, the eleventh Wes Anderson feature film. Dustin, uh, what, what what are your thoughts on this? And Wes Anderson is a filmmaker. I love Wes Anderson. He's one of the first directors. Uh, I really attached myself to as a teenager one of the first directors i binged all of his movies and i love all of his movies 
Then Isle of Dogs came out, and I do like that movie, but that was the first one where I was just like, yeah, I'm not a larve. I don't larve this movie. But we'll, I'll give him, you know, he hasn't made a bad movie yet. French Dispatch was like fucked over because of COVID. And to me, that is his weakest movie. Yeah. Still his weakest movie. Still not a bad movie. Definitely, it might arguably his, be his most well, uh, his most beautiful looking movie, rather. Uh, but I just don't think the story, all three of those like anthologies came together uh, as cleanly as they should have. And I don't know. I just thought it was a little bit more cynical than his other movies. And Asteroid City. He keeps piling on those casts, Dominic. Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. It's like half literally, of Hollywood. In this it's movie. so funny because I was literally making this joke where I'm like, I almost dread a wet, every time a Wes Anderson movie comes out now because it's like he literally, I'm like, just the amount of actors in my letterbox that I have to update every single time a Wes Anderson movie comes out. And it's, aside from like a handful, it's never like a substantial part. It's always just like a microscopic cameo and they're all just reciting Wes Anderson. For the most lines. part. There's a yeah. few in this movie where it's just like, it's cool to see Tom Hanks have a cool have a role in a in a yes. Wes Anderson movie, and it's and actually Steve pretty Burrell, even, even you know our, our the subject of our, our most recent Actors Hall of Fame. Which again, I think of all the actors in this movie, Steve Carell was the only one not quite giving a Wes Anderson performance. You know, which which I'll get into that he when, was when I a natural performance, right? Exactly, like, like he which always I'll, does. Which yeah. I'll get into that when I get into my thoughts on Wes Anderson. As I'm glad, and and you were telling me this right that Bill Murray he was supposed to, Bill Murray was supposed to play that role, right? I believe and, so, yes. Because this is the, the first West movie since yeah. uh, Bottle Rocket that Murray has not been in. Yeah, and it's weird to me that that was the role he was supposed to play because Carell is so, like, perfect for that. To me, it was so obviously the Tom Hanks role right. that he was supposed right. to play, right? Right, which is like, ironic also. We're, like, Murray, around the same age, right? Right. Yeah, just about. Like, Murray, Murray and I, I think Murray might be a little bit older, but yeah, no, yeah, they're right around older, the same age. Yeah. But, like, they might have modified it to, like, 65 for Tom Hanks. Like, yeah. Like, crazy that he's, like, yeah, he's probably 65, Tom Hanks. Tom, but, yeah, he's 66, yeah. Yeah, so they def they modified it probably to him. But I, I, I see Bill Murray more in that role. Other, otherwise, yeah, the cast is uniformly really good as per usual. Right. I thought Scarlett was a little overhyped. I thought she was underused in this movie. I would have liked to see a little bit of more her and her body, if you know what yes, I mean. Sir. But uh, uh, we'll talk more about body shots. Yeah, no, this movie, is this is certainly has, has been... a better body shot. Yes, sir. Uh, I was about to say, like, this has been the weekend <laughs> of seeing attractive actresses just flaunting oh, out like for everyone. Green. Too, like yes, the top sir. tier ones, like yes, her sir. and J Law. Oh yes, Sarjo and J Law, dude. Yes, uh, but uh, <laughs> Black Widow and Mystique. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love that. That's still like the big budget role, Jennifer. That we attribute Jennifer Lawrence well, to, not Katniss Everdeen. Yeah. It's well, true. It's true. It's oh true. yeah, I forgot about Cat. Well, at least I saw all the X Men movies. That's the that's, that's the true. Thing. I've only I've still only seen the first Hunger Games. Games. I'm gonna go back Damn. and watch all the Hunger Games movies at some point. Yeah, should we though? Should we do that? I don't know. I'm a completionist, you know. And I, I heard that the movies <laughs> do get somewhat better, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, my thoughts on all of the, did you watch all the in the Divergent movies? Well, I have never seen a single Divergent movie, so I'm like, why would oh, I start okay. something that looks right. unbelievably that, atrocious? That, that seems like a Dominic movie. Nah, nah. Uh, See, no, that was one that. That was one that even in high school I knew was going to be shitty, but... This movie was fine, Dominic. It's, like, definitely his second weakest movie behind French Dispatch, just because oh, so you of have, how... you have French Dispatch below this. 
Uh, for sure, because I think this had like a little bit more creativity behind it. It I like the meta-ness of it. I just don't think he's as uh he I don't think he pulls it off as well as he should, you know, as a filmmaker of his stature should. And I know we were ragging on him about getting like such huge cast for little tiny roles and everything. And Matt Dillon's another one who has like a little right. bit Matt part, Dillon like, also I wish he had a little bit more to do because he's proven himself as to be an amazing Hong Chow pop in this is the pop up. That's what I mean. Like yeah, Hong Chow. Like, I didn't even realize that was Hong Chow. Come in out of nowhere. Yeah, like your Mara like, Robbie's there for a Adrian photo. And then she comes in at the end. I'm like, what is happening? Or it's like pulling about the biggest actresses of our generation. She's just in a one pivotal scene, but still, yes. and, and she plays an important character. Uh, but like, it's just a small piece of the puzzle. But that shows to you how much actors want to work with Wes Anderson because yes. of how great and distinct his films are. Yes. And yeah, it's definitely not going to be one I want to rewatch like over and over again. I will give this a second chance. I'm more eager to give this a second chance than I am French Dispatch just because of how displeased I was by the second story in the French Dispatch uh, involving Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand fucking for some reason. Uh, but yes, uh, seven and a half for Asteroid City. I, I If this was 2014... Uh, I, this would be like a nine and a half for me, but like, this is only a seven and a half. It's a better, I saw people comparing this to Nope. And I'm just like, yeah, if Wes Anderson made no, yeah, I kind of see that. Like Maybe, because of the whole like, alien thing. And like, uh, I've heard some and totally it. and, and, oh, it's and a different movie aesthetically, but there's different. parts you can compare though. Sure. But yeah. Not saying like shot for shot. No, I, I, I don't know. Like to me, that's a little bit of a reach. Yeah. So my take on Wes Anderson. So I've been okay. slowly catching up on my Wes Anderson movies over the years. I still have three left to watch. I still have yet to watch Bottle Rocket. I got to finish Life Aquatic and I still have to see Darjeeling Limited. But I've, I've caught up on all the big ones. I actually watched Rushmore the day before I saw Asteroid City. And my take on Wes Anderson is that there's pre-2014 Wes Anderson and there's post-2014 Wes Anderson. Very similar to you. Because the first Wes Anderson movie that I saw was The Grand Budapest Hotel. And okay. I love that movie. That movie is great. just such a delight. I think it's a great balancing act between everything that makes him great, where he is able to create these massive, beautiful, gorgeous, aesthetically pleasing, perfectly symmetrical canvases that toe the line so well between uh, be, between humanity and surrealist uh, art and surrealist uh, cartoony art pieces, you know, where like 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 the sequences that happen in his movies are straight up Looney Tunesy, like where you have like people going on chase sequences and committing random acts of violence against each other, you know. And as I was watching each of his movies, you know, throughout it, I, I believe I watched Moonrise Kingdom next, then I watched Isle of Dogs, then Royal Tenenbaums. Then Fantastic Mr. Fox, I just watched recently. And the That's most recent crazy. one that I watched was Rushmore. I started watching Life Aquatic and, and, and I fell asleep during it. And the thing that I noticed is that as his films have gone on, they've gotten less and less human. But I think that the difference is that with, with the reason why that, that 09 to 14 is like his sweet spot. I remember because Darjeeling Limited, if memory serves, was not that well critically received. But then he had the massive bounce back when he transferred fully to stop motion with Fantastic Mr. Fox because it's just like he just felt like the perfect person to be able to adapt uh, Roald Dahl's uh, source material uh, perfectly. And I think the thing that really works with Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest is that, that those are the two perfect merging points of his two sensibilities. of the You, you feel the humanity in those characters. But the cartoonishness, specifically, specifically more so with Grand Budapest, is just off the charts and is another level and is really funny. And I feel like with everything that he's done after Grand Budapest, it's just that there's been something missing. Isle of Dogs 
I think, had a, some really great humane moments with the dogs, but all the human characters, it's like, what, what is the purpose of them? They're just like stock characters. And, and also, on top of it, there's there's subtitle, there's no subtitles in that movie, right? Which, which okay, is a problem. And then French Dispatch, I I like. I'm gonna go a little bit of the opposite. I like that movie a little bit more than Asteroid City for the pure fact that I just thought it was funnier, and I was just able to enjoy it. And like that movie is just. I even said, I'm like, this movie is straight up a live action cartoon. I'm like, and that's fine. I like cartoons. Like I like cartoony sensibilities, and the fact that he's able to keep that consistently going throughout the movie, even like like it wasn't taking itself seriously. This movie, I was, I found it a little bit harder to emotionally connect to this movie. Like, I really, I, I, I thought that it was, it was too stale. I thought it was too stagnant. I thought it was too much. Like, oh, we're just every character is looking straight into the camera and talking exactly like this, even though we were supposed to be extremely emotional. Like, I, I can't connect to that. You know, like that. Like, if, if there's no humor to be found, that's, if they're not fair. like playing it up for the joke, I, I just, I couldn't, I really could not emotionally connect to this, especially with this directly following up Rushmore. Which for me personally, I think even though Grand Budapest, I think is his best movie for me, I think Rushmore might be my favorite of his because I just oh, yeah. there was something there was just like a relatable. Pure, yeah, it was just so relatable. There was just a pure unadulterated humanity in that movie, like with between Schwartzman and Bill Murray's characters that I just thought and like the, the humor in that movie was just so pitch perfect with how dry it was, but yet how ridiculous ridiculous the actual antics were like when the kids start throwing rocks at him and then when he fucking puts on the fake blood to try and get with the team like that hilarious hilarious i'm like yes that that is my peak west and this west i gotta say i mean he's doing another roll doll movie later this year but it's a short movie yeah, i gotta say lame. like i yeah. hated i hated hearing that to combat what you were saying where it's yeah. like it's hard to attach your uh to these characters of this movie specifically because it's basically a play right you know what i mean and right. like that but, like, I don't understand the purpose of the play. Like, I get that it's supposed to be, yeah. like, a meta-statement on like art. A but, like, right. Yeah. And I like that they turn the play, like, us, the audience, we see it in a cinematic landscape. And that that's cool and creative, even though it's essentially a play. You know right. what I mean? But I don't understand what the point of the play fully was. Right. Maybe that'll sink in for me on a rewatch. But I like that this was a little bit more thought-provoking than the French Dispatch. Sure. I thought the French Dispatch was kind of discombobulated and what all those three anthologies meant to the French Dispatch paper itself. But I I, I don't know. I liked uh, the ensemble more here. I would have liked it to be a little bit longer. If this was like 10, 15 minutes longer, I think this would have been really a great film uh but as, for what we got it's another solid wes anderson movie but he's sure. capable of greatness like yeah. absolute perfection like fantastic mr fox and the royal tenenbaums yeah no i i agree yeah um yeah wes anderson to me is the definition of a consistent filmmaker where again he's never missed he's never made a bad movie no. and yeah and his style is just so succinct and locked in place that like he, again he'll be able to make movies like this for the rest of his time and he's I, just I don't... starting to make disappointing movies right so. just right exactly but just like a little below his his average exactly and I, like i would never go so far as to state that his movies are bad like no. i would never say that about an anderson movie so like i said i still have the last three to watch before i will have completed his filmography oh, which he plans to do you gotta watch yeah, zisu. zisu yeah i gotta watch zisu i've heard that's that one's great. really good so far my absolute favorites are um Buda budapest rushmore and moonrise kingdom not gonna lie fantastic mr fox it was good i liked it I think I like the Isle of Dogs a little bit more. Sorry, but out of I'm, here. I, I'm serious. I'm serious. I think I like the Isle of Dogs a little Fantastic bit more. Mr. Fox is arguably his masterpiece. It's like a culmination 
of his pacing, his editing, his comedic style, and his wonder combined with uh, Roald Dahl's creativity and imaginativeness. And everyone in that cast is firing on, on yeah. all cylinders. George Clooney, perfect. Meryl Streep, Jason Schwartzman. It's just perfect. Wally I, I, guess, I, I guess the reason why is because it's such a pitch-perfect adaptation of that novel that, like, it, it is so, so weird for me to say because again the movie is a masterpiece it is structurally perfect on every level it's kind of a thing where it's like because it is there's nothing really wrong with tightly paced too yeah, like it's the very tightly is so paced tight. well. and like isle of dogs kind of drags and like you don't understand what anybody's saying in that movie for the most part at least there's great dialogue most of the time in fantastic mr fox but i, I digress yeah. Okay. All right, going on to the other big, uh, big drop that we had uh, this week, movie-wise. No hard feelings. Uh, this movie is a, strangely enough, again, only in 2023 could a movie like this be such a big deal because in any pre-COVID year, even 2019, which is when these types of movies were starting to go out of theaters, where you have a raunchy—I use that term very loosely—comedy yeah. uh, that that is mostly a coming-of-age slash rom-com that has a big splashy movie star. And it's getting released in theaters. I feel like, again, the fact that we pretty much, these types of movies stopped getting made for theaters and were made kind of exclusively for streaming. But they just like, was an excuse for the streamers to kind of cheap out on them. I don't know. I, I do think that the for the most interesting thing about this movie is the fact that it was getting such a pretty hard marketing campaign. I think this is the first comedy that I think I remember since game night, really, that's gotten like a pretty extensive marketing campaign. And even though the movie itself, I just watched it. I finished watching it a couple hours ago. Even though the movie itself is just okay. It's not a great movie. The fact that like it's enjoyable and it's sweet and it's harmless. And, you know, even though, you know, if, if you know, a certain uh, subject matter that I think, you know, is trying to be more relevant than it is, but also like, again, it is touching on certain topics like, you know, differences between millennials and Gen Zers and overprotective parents. And, you know, the idea of like, you know, what, what the idea of growing up in a, in a completely surrounded like bubble is nowadays. I don't know. Like I, I enjoyed this one. Honestly, I really did. You did. You enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing. This movie's fine. That's 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 really it. It's right, fine. It. It's harmless, it's, a, it's you know? fine. It's not. It's not. I wouldn't call this good either, though. I laughed okay. a couple of times. You understand? Right. I chuckled mostly because of the charm of Jennifer Lawrence, and yes. she really carries the hell out of this fucking yeah. movie. Let yeah. me tell you, like she is fucking great in yes. this movie. Th this movie solidifies that Lawrence is a movie star because oh absolutely because it has a thin fucking script it has a thousand ideas it wants to throw at you and it has no idea how to tackle them it doesn't want it's too soft to be edgy and it's it's too like it's just it doesn't have a set of balls i'm sorry i'm sorry for being graphic it has a set of tits and a vagina oh let indeed me tell you that. oh indeed and that it was does. great to see on oh the indeed screen. it does i yeah, saw does. this on the big screen and that was yeah, fucking worth it oh even right? on the small screen i was like it's, this is if we're gonna get crap. more hot naked girls flashback in, to 2013 in comedies i'm flashback to 2013 2014 indeed but yeah no yeah, that no, was great I, to see jennifer lawrence is like one of the, one of my crushes forever so also I the fact that she Lawrence. pretty much hasn't aged like at all oh no like, like over the course of 10 years also the fact that she's had a kid too and that's right? what she looks like which is that. which is wild wild it's when great. you think about that like yeah but, no uh, but other than that, no i agree i tend to agree with, like i said it, it's i don't want to seem like i'm giving this movie more credit than it deserves it's but again it's funny it, and it no, doesn't really push the boundaries like but, the but marketing suggests like it, here, if but, it wants to, if we want these movies good i hope it makes money but like make them edgier 
You know right. what I mean? Make and, them and, and funnier. That's Make them like the Hangover. Make them like Superman. Make them like Wedding Crashers. Give us edgy, funny, consistently right. funny shit. And that's ultimately the problem is it falls victim to its marketing where the marketing makes this movie seem like it's going to be a lot raunchier and funnier than it is. And it, it is a good movie. It is heartfelt. You get emotionally attached to these characters. At least I did. You get emotionally attached to these characters. You understand like kind of the struggles of both of them individually. And I actually think the ending resolution is actually kind of good. But it almost plays itself out more like something like uh, more more similar to like something like the fault in our stars and rather that's what i mean it has a tonally rather, out of yeah sorry right rather than like a, something like you said like a wedding crash or like a hangover like, like it's completely mismarketed to me that that and i all but it's also i think goes into the problem that comedies were having before uh covid is because the reason why not a lot of people are going to see them is because they were marketed completely wrong because game, even game night which we both love that movie's marketing does not mesh at all with the type of movie that it is, same as it is Tag. Tag is a lot darker than it was marketed, you know? It's just, I don't know what it is with these studios, but they market these, it's like they they market every one of these movies, like Pineapple Express, but not every single one of these movies is Pineapple Express, you know? So it's like, it, it's a it's a problem with the marketing and the fact that they need to actually figure out like well, what a quote-unquote raunchy comedy is. These even. trailers wish they had the trailer oh, of Pineapple obviously, Express, yeah. okay? But uh, yeah, this movie just has a completely like fairly brothers-esque beginning and like opening 15 minutes where it just starts and it's all goofy and giddy and everything but like in a copycat way not in an right. actual like fairly brothers in peak 90s form and then it has the ending of some like coming of age fault in our stars movie right. like you're saying right and it's just completely disconnected there's no real comeuppance with the matthew broderick or laurie bonatic uh bonati right and it seems like the yeah. movie's gonna take those two characters to task a little bit for what which they, they for should, what they, which because they absolutely it's should. Be. And like it's the 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 movie never knows what to do with that premise of like, oh, should they? Shouldn't they? They should have let them fuck. Honestly, like yeah, if you want to make the really an edgy comedy, why they didn't have the have the, the parents like react off of that? Do something. This was like kind of boring after a while, and it was just trying to make us feel bad for a flawed character which is fine and she does a great job at that it just feels yes. like a, a, a more lighthearted version of bad teacher which yes. this falls under the same category i mean that movie was more irritating at its worst but it still has the same amount of laugh factor that yes. this did you know it I just agree. doesn't stay with you that i much. agree definitely felt like a first draft that definitely needed to be looked over there, there's pieces of some good stuff in here but largely overall like like you said in any other year this would be considered a, a terrible movie but considering just how little of these types of comedies that we get yeah. it feels like just a breath of fresh air as opposed to like a, a lot of the um a lot of the franchise uh stuff that we are kind of slammed in the face with the only thing that was a breath theaters. of fresh air in this movie was jennifer lawrence going full nude for a gag that was the, <laughs> that was a fresh air and that's when i genuinely laughed hard and it yeah. wasn't like a gimmick like it was actually well earned that scene and like surprising and her reaction to everything and then she had like one of the funniest lines after that she's like come on fuck me already like like that was that made me laugh my ass off yeah. but you know i had to wait 35 minutes to get the first huge laugh of the movie that's a yeah. problem that These is a other problem. movies that we're talking about like tropic thunder pineapple express super bad you name it the peak comedies that yes. we grew up with dominic yes. like those movies have you laughing from start to it's finish true. it's true this movie you're gonna forget most of it by the end of two months it's you know true. what i mean this two is months you're gonna forget most of it by the end of the week yeah, exactly. And you're yeah. not going to be saying this is one of the best comedies of this year. Right. If we are, we're living in one of the right. worst years in film.
Well, I mean, but we've already been saying that. But yeah, it speaks to a larger yeah. problem with comedy in general. And like, the, to me, the reason why the genre was dying off, besides the fact that they were marketing them horribly, besides the fact that the comedies we were getting were very, very few and far between because we just listed Game Night and Tag, and we both really like Longshot. But even Longshot, to me, was I not like really that. like... I like Longshot. I like it a lot. But that's not like a laugh a or a... a the, a laugh a second comedy you know no, that's but at least it's like, it, no it's like more balanced like an actual yes. movie should and it builds to the laughs like that movie when it builds to funny moments it's hilarious like yes. quite consistently like yes. it doesn't need to be a laugh a minute comedy like like it's a little more differently paced than some of these other movies that we're saying but yes. it's still in the same ballpark this yes. is not anywhere near not that. even close not even like close. yeah because and it's interesting because this is not the only uh raunchy raunchy comedy that we're getting this year we're also getting joyride in a couple weeks as well so we'll have yeah, to touch base on and that one and this how director that goes. this director did good boys as his directorial debut which was a much funnier and much more consistently feel good and like brief and more tightly paced 90 minute fucking movie this movie needed to be funnier I'm sorry. You can't just do your multi-million dollar, forty million dollar comedy on Jennifer Lawrence's shoulders. I mean, she's funny. She is really funny, but she's not funny enough to build a movie off this thin premise. Yeah, two and I a agree. half out of five. I agree. For me, uh, I'd probably give it like a three out of five, just about. Um, okay. All right. So moving on, we have two more things to kick before we do our top tens uh, of halfway point of the year. First off, another show that dropped literally the day after this other show that we're going to drop, which is the follow up effort from a director that we both saw his directorial debut in 2018. Sorry to bother you. Interesting movie. Interesting premise. Again, felt like it was just packing in a little bit too many ideas to be really uh, consistent as a movie. But I got to say. Just based on the first two episodes that we saw for his new show, I'm a Virgo, which dropped all seven episodes on Amazon Prime uh, on Friday, which follows Jarrell Jerome's character, Cootie, who is a 13-foot-tall, 19-year-old teenager who is trying to interact with the world. We've all, both only seen two episodes, and I got to say, I'm immediately way more invested in this than I was in Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You had an interesting premise that seemed like it was going to be a one-note joke that then just all of a sudden threw all these other crazy ideas at you. And Boots Riley definitely has a really, really interesting um, view of, of, of the way that like we interact like with, with consumerism specifically, and I like his take on it. But I just my whole thing is I'm like, I needed it to be more consistent. And, 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 the, and the, the whatever, the horse people that came out of nowhere and Sorry to Bother You, I can't say I was a fan of, but I already, just based on these two episodes that I saw, I'm already liking what he's doing with this i like the idea of like you know his parents you know wanted to withhold him from the world because you know they don't want him to be exposed to the over sensationalism and then him of course getting immediately sensationalized and the world reacting to him the way that he does and him already getting like hit up as a model of like i'm liking where the show is going for sure i still gotta see the, le the rest of the five episodes in order to see where it goes but i gotta say just based off what i've seen I'm really impressed by it. So what are your thoughts on it? Because we haven't actually gotten a chance to talk a whole lot about this. I don't feel that strongly about it. I think the style is really cool. It's cool to see that Boots Riley was given carte blanche to do an Amazon series. And he is pretty much just Spike Lee on mushrooms. And sometimes his style is a little indulgent. But I'm willing to give the rest of this another chance. I, I didn't have a strong reaction to the first two episodes. But I'm... I'm, I'm I'm kind of interested to see where it goes. And I, I do like the performances for the most part. Jarrell Jerome is one of the better younger actors of his generation. And I like Mike Epps and Walton Goggins a lot. Yes. So. Walton Goggins in particular. It's like, again, he's just that guy. Every time he shows up in something, he just makes it instantly better. Like, I'm, like yeah. I've, I already watched the first two episodes of The Righteous Gemstones. Episode three is on tonight. I already can't wait for Uncle Baby Billy to make his appearance as single-handedly, possibly the best character on that entire show. Yeah. Righteous Gemstones, like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm... 
I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like, I kind of only care about everything that's going on with John Goodman. I don't really care about the three siblings because every time the three, I love Danny McBride, but every time the three siblings show up, I'm like, it's just going to be more pointless bickering uh, until the next thing. And, and Edie Patterson is, is cheating on her husband to no one's surprise. And Adam Devine is still irritating beyond belief. And we're not getting that much of Tony Cavallaro, who has consistently been the best part about Adam Devine's arc throughout this entire time. I'm way more invested in John Goodman because I feel like John Goodman's arc, that's the only time where the show stops being a comedy and actually like gets into like more of the heartfelt, innate family stuff that the show wants to be about. And and, and him and Skyler Jusando had an incredible like car driving scene at the end of right. episode two that I thought was phenomenal. And and of course, I'm, just, I'm waiting for Walton Goggins to show up. I think the biggest crime that season two committed was not utilizing him as much, but, the, but they but they but they they suffice with with the other insert that they had, and with, especially with with one Eric Andre and, and the amazing twist ending that that came from the end of season two. But uh, yeah, I'm a Virgo. Like I said, we, this is only going to be like a quick discussion. But yeah, overall, I got to say, interesting first two episodes. I enjoyed it. Interested to see where uh, where the next five episodes go. Um, now, moving into it. This is – oh, I was texting you about this one. This one was like – this was, I think, the big hit new splashy surprise show of last year that it had an interesting release strategy. Hulu opted to drop all these episodes rather than dropping them week to week. It was an interesting – it was a risky decision considering that that is usually an easy way to make shows disappear if they're not on Netflix. And that was not at all the case with The Bear season one, which, again, was – an a very, very well done first season to me, but felt like it was lacking something to really make it hit. You know, like it had all the pieces to be like a great prestige show. It's got a really good and interesting cast. It's got a good enough premise. It was tackling a world and a type of storytelling that you really hadn't seen in prestige TV before. And the filmmaking itself was just <clears throat> so frenetic and creative and engaging. And just like, like you, you, the, the way that the, that the filmmaking is done, it really makes you feel like you are in that kitchen with them. And you feel the stress and the mental strain that comes from that. But for me, I remember finishing the first season last year and being like, okay, that was really good, but I couldn't really connect to it. And I feel like everything that I was missing for that first season was found right here in the second season because, oh man, I don't know when it started to click. The first couple episodes were, they were starting to repeat some of the similar beats of season one. I'm like, okay, we, we've done this before. You know, when is this going to pick it up? And then I think it was with, it was either when Carmi's, um, when, when Carmi's former fling, who then becomes his girlfriend, shows up. Mm -hmm. for, also when Marcus went to Amsterdam. And then it really hit home with that middle episode with, with, with where they had all the family members with all the celebrity inserts. And I'm like, oh, this show just hit another level. And after finish, I binged the whole thing in two days. I could not stop watching after a certain point. It was the first show that I binged. Dude, I love it. This is already a lock for me for, for show of the year, easily. Yeah, I think it ended up being a more successful season. The first couple episodes of this season, I was just like, okay, all right. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because that first season for me, the first half of that first season was pretty fire. Mm -hmm. And I do think like when uh, that dip in the middle, when, mm. uh, you know, Chris, those two episodes where Christopher Storr doesn't direct, it's yeah. very like you could tell yeah. because it's he's a very uh, and I, I feel like. Uh, there's a similar problem with like, you know, episode three and five in this season. Uh, but uh, episode four was actually a good one with Ram Rami Youssef. Yeah, with Rami Youssef directing the episode. Christopher Storr yes. is becoming like one of the better, like more distinct directors on television right now. Because yes. he has like a very visceral style, like you were saying. You feel like you're in the kitchen and getting yelled at. And like, mm -hmm. uh, while some of the improv uh, techniques on this show get a little, little irritating, there's just 
a couple undeniable performances on here that you really just have to sing the praises of, like Jeremy Allen White and especially yes. Evan Moss Bacharach. Oh, really my has God. Set, he's, he has one of the best episodes of the uh, series so far. Easily. Easily. That, 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 that Forks episode is epi- – that, that's episode of the year material for me, that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not crazy about how the 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 finale ends per se. Just it, yeah, a little, a little melodramatic things that are yeah. trying to be melodramatic. And, and there's like one like over dramatic like thing involving like a you know refrigerator and, so, and someone's yeah. right next to the door, and then you realize it's them. And it's like uh, yeah. really just it was, it, like, it was dumb. And I'm like, that's how that's gonna end, really. Yeah, like, it was kind of like a bummer. But other than that, I agree. It is one of the it's a stronger season overall in terms of the character writing. But uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's one, well, it's because really like, I feel like one of my biggest criticisms of the first season was that like I felt like all the other people in the back of the restaurant just didn't get enough development, and there were certain points where I was just questioning like, why is he keeping all these people? You know, and I just felt like there were like there were certain bits of information that I needed to know about the characters from that first season that definitely got answered very specifically addressed and answered this season, which I was a big fan of. Like Tina, Ibra, Mark, a lot of like again the, the restaurant staff. Um, what what's his name? The uh, uh fat getting a lot more character development. Richie really <clears throat> improved him. Like that family. Oh my god, can we just talk about that? That that episode six episode for a minute. Six. And the, the, yeah, yeah the seven good. fishes where. You get that. It's another flashback episode where we get an entire hour devoted to it. Uh, John Bernthal is cast as Carmi's, uh, Jeremy Allen White's older brother, which it's just unbelievable. John Bernthal really has become that actor where he only shows up for about three seconds of screen time. I'm, I'm, I'm. Being facetious, obviously, and everything that he's in, but he's always the best part about him. Like I still might be the best actor in terms of like portraying anger. I think he so. might be the best. I think so. And, and the thing is that, like, obviously, everybody loves making joke, making jokes like, "Oh, all he does is yell." It's like you need That's to watch something true. like that, which has never been true. But like to watch something like this, where he is just has so much pain in those eyes underneath it. Like when he is throwing the folks forks at Bob Odenkirk, which we just got to go over this cast that they've assembled for this. You got Jamie Lee Curtis as their mom. You got Bob yes. Odenkirk as their uncle. You good. got um, what's it called? You got Jillian Jacobs as uh, Evan Moss Backrack's baby mama. You got Sarah Paulson and John Mulaney. As the two cousins, that just I'm like, it's just like a, a revolving smorgasbord of how many actors they could get, and for the most part, they were all great. I was almost like, Mulaney was phenomenal, and that Mulaney with that one monologue that he gives at the end about why the Seven Fishes is like important to him was unbelievable. But I, but yeah. I saw, but I saw you grimace a little with, with Jamie Lee Curtis there. So yeah, she's way too over the top in this. Way yeah. too over the top. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know what's going on with her. With her and uh, with this and the Halloween movies and everything ever all at once. Yeah, she's out of. She's really turning into kind of a bad actress to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, people are saying she deserves an Emmy for this, but I thought she was like, wait, I it's miscast. I was a big miscast. fan of her performance, but I understand where you're coming from in terms of like, yeah, she's definitely overplaying it, and she's playing into a very, very specific type that it is ve- already very it's like difficult. Bipolar, right? And, and like yeah. again, it's like the whole thing of like again the show sort of scratching the surface of like the problems that come with mental illness that is not addressed and how that builds up generationally over time. And then attempting to hit that all in that one very, very claustrophobic episode. I swear this show does claustrophobia. Unlike anybody else, it is pitch perfect how it handles it. But that's the one it's especially with like, how she shows up outside the restaurant but can't go in mm-hmm. for reasons that and it has to be the fucking goofy uh and it has to be the goofy, the goofy husband right from love that guy's great that guy's really great really fantastic that up. guy that guy deserves an emmy nomination he's for terrific sure. yeah, yeah he's terrific that guy yeah big he was fan. great in the first season too yes yeah but yeah big fan big fan of the show now 
Can't wait to see if if and when they bring it back for season three. I hope they do. I, I can't believe I have to say that now because they of, probably you know, will. They probably will. It, it's been a big uh, hit for FX. Yeah. FX still still delivered just being solid overall. You know, they got what we do in the shadows of Reservation Dogs. And I think they have Shogun and hopefully Fargo season five still comes out this year. or doesn't get delayed because of the writer's strike. But uh, yeah. All right. So, Dustin, shall, now that we've got, glossed over all this content, shall we break down our top ten? favorite movies of 2020 of 2023 so far i gotta say it's been a relatively disappointing year but the good news is that we were able to see some tribeca movies i unfortunately missed one because my online screening expired but we both saw some good movies and so this film this list will largely be attributed to uh tribeca movies so dustin i'm thinking that rather than how we normally do it for our actors hall of fame well let's just run through our 10 through 6 each just run through it quick, uh, shout out some, and then go through five through two, and then we'll do our. Then we'll talk about our number ones. Okay. All uh, right, number ten for me is Ben Affleck's Air. Uh, number nine is uh, I, a movie I saw on digital Tribeca last year, but it got a release this year, and that's God's Time. Uh, this uh, directorial debut by Daniel Antebi. It's kind of like a Safdie Brothers kind of esque movie. It's very good. It's like COVID set. Number eight is Randall Park's directorial debut that I caught at Virtual Sundance Shortcomings, which is very good. It has a phenomenal lead performance from Justin H. Min. Uh, number seven is Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut, Creed Three, uh, which features uh, phenomenal, uh, you know, uh, fighting scenes and a great villainous turn from Jonathan Majors who is canceled forever. But he turned in one of the best performances of the year also in Magazine Dreams, another movie I caught at Sundance. And number six is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, fantastic animation, great cast, uh, really thrilling. It's very cinematic. I love that it harkens back to the style of Batman Mask of the Phantasm a little bit. It just has that you know tonal feel. And even though I liked Into the Spider-Verse more, I definitely enjoyed this, and I think Beyond the Spider-Verse has potential to top both of them. Yes, indeed. If it actually makes its March release date, which I do not know if it will. So I'm just doing some slight rearranging of my list as I'm examining it. All right. So now my top 10 list, uh, my my 10 through six. My number 10 is M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, a movie that I had very low expectations for after uh, his last couple of efforts, uh, a Glass and Old being kind of disappointing. But Knock at the Cabin, I think, expresses everything that, M- that makes M. Night a great filmmaker. I thought it was very... Very existential. I thought the acting was terrific around the board. I was locked in and engaged from minute one to how to minute what however long this movie was. And I thought this movie actually had some very poignant and very interestingly like sweet and emotionally heartfelt moments. Even moments that you think would be played for comedy in a typical M Night movie. I have to say I enjoyed overall and just the fact that like I feel like it's kind of being overlooked by a lot of people. I I, I definitely think that this deserves a little bit more love, a little bit more of a shout out. Uh, my number nine is Pixar's Elemental, a movie that a lot of people people have been saying is mediocre Pixar is not the Pixar of old. I could not disagree more. This to me is everything that I enjoy about Pixar of old. It's got the stylistics. It's got the uh, deeper message, even if the message is maybe a little bit more modern, but it's not as obnoxious and in your face as, um, 
as uh, Turning Red was last year. I particularly enjoyed the voiceover and I liked the kind of the, the portrayal of the immigrant struggle. I found that to be like really enjoyable and heartfelt and the buildup of the romance and the, you know, the goofy comedy. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. My number eight is Past Lives, the A24 film uh, by Celine Song. I thought this movie was probably one of the best examinations of how relationships change over time that I've ever seen. I was expecting to get bored by this movie at some point and I, and I was expecting that the, the, the romance to get uh, overly melodramatic but I think just because of like I've always been interested in the idea of change over time and seeing that portrayed on the uh, what's it called on the in the cinematic lens that's always been one of the more interesting things that I think cinema has been capable of and I think this movie did it uh, absolutely well number seven is one of a couple films that I saw at Tribeca that being Randall Park's directorial debut Shortcomings this movie was just absolutely spectacular I think this is one of the best uh, demonstrations uh, of, of just making unlikable people as approachable and, and and fun to watch as humanly possible, where there was absolutely almost nothing redeemable about Justin H. Min's character, and yet Randall Park is somehow able to find the humanity in his character. And my number six is Apple TV Plus is so far really only great movie of the year, that being Tetris, which is a movie that you have been telling me about for years that I finally that I that I finally watched and just had. It's an absolute blast. It's the social network meets a Cold War spy thriller, and it's just an absolute joy to watch from start to finish. Taron Egerton kills it in the lead role, and yeah, yeah, it's Tetris. If you like Tetris and you like Cold War thrillers, it's a merging of genres that shouldn't work, but works way better than you would think it does. So yeah, that's my 10 through 6. All right, so then you want me to do my 5 through uh, 2? 5 through 2, yes. All right, my number 5 is another debut. It's based off a nonfiction book. How to Blow Up a Pipeline, directed by yes. Daniel Goldhaber. Uh, it has a, a relatively unknown cast. It has a couple familiar faces in it. It has uh, Sasha Lane from American Honey, uh, uh, Lucas Gage from Euphoria, uh, Forrest Goodluck from uh, uh, The Revenant, and uh, Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and Jake Weary from one of my favorite shows, Animal Kingdom. Uh, it's a very taut 70s-esque thriller it's very well paced it has one of the best musical scores of the year that harkens back to tangerine dream uh yeah i really enjoyed this a lot and it has a good message to it and it has really good tension and very good performances all the way through number four is tetris directed by john s baird who also directed filth uh, a movie that's also very underrated that starred James McAvoy in one of his best performances. But this starred Taron Egerton as the guy that discovers Tetris, one of my fa uh, favorite things in the world. It's my favorite game. I play it a lot. It's the only thing I play, really. And uh, I really thought this has the best musical score this year by Lauren Balfe, one of my favorite, most consistent composers that we have working today. And it has uh, a really solid supporting cast like Toby Jones and Roger Allam from Speed Racer. But Taron Egerton really carries the fuck out of this movie. And it's very entertaining. It's funny. It's very well edited. It's from the, it's you know it's co-edited by the guy that did Hackers. It's the Social Network meets Hackers, as far as I'm concerned. Number three, controversial, Andy Muschietti's The Flash. Sorry, oh, people. That is controversial. Sorry, yes, people. Yes, I'm sorry I had fun. I'm sorry I actually had a lot of fun. I was looking forward to this movie forever. And Ezra Miller kicked the fucking shit out of this performance. He's They are fucking phenomenal in this. They, they get every comic beat down. They're, it's, it's, it's just perfect work from them great ensemble but he they carry the hell out of this movie and i know the effects aren't 
the greatest in the world in the third act. But I think in the first half in particular, there's plenty of uh, effects to admire in this movie. And you guys act like there's no, uh, you know, effects to make fun of in Marvel movies. It's like you guys forgot about how shitty the effects were in Quantumania two months ago. Shut up and enjoy the Flash. You got your Michael Keaton back. Sasha Cal is hot as fuck. Fucking enjoy this movie. It's funny and enjoyable and cool. We're never seeing Ezra Miller again, especially nope. with that ending. Nope. We're definitely not, but it was fun while it lasted. Sorry. Number three. My number two is Blackberry, directed by Matt Johnson, yes. a director who I've never, I'm not a big fan of him. He's a talented guy, but he's a little too abrasive because he's a writer, actor, director, and he's very, he's very self-aware always when it comes to being a movie lover and everything. And I know we are, but he takes it to another level sometimes, especially writing himself, uh, well, not writing himself, but he plays like a, a character in this movie. It's about uh, the creation of Blackberry and how it's uh, sort of uh, discovered by this businessman played by Glenn Howerton. And he kind of, you know, weasels his way into becoming the co-founder of Blackberry with Jay Baruchel plays Mike Lazaridis, uh, you know, the inventor of the device. And Matt Johnson plays his right hand man. It's loosely based off the true story, but it feels so genuine and real and raw the way it's shot, the way it's scored, the way it's performed. It's this movie's very funny, but it isn't a comedy. It has really funny moments. That's why it's very reminiscent of the social network and has an ending that kind of rips it off, but it's fucking well done. And it has a little bit of a pacing issue. It could have, it's another movie that could have been at least 10, 15 minutes longer to really get the full scope of what it was trying to say. But other than that, it's tight as hell and uh, has a great ensemble cast. Matt Johnson turns in his best performance for sure, uh, being a very uh, well-earned comic relief and heart of this film. And Glenn Howerton is scary as fuck and phenomenal, gives his best film performance. And I'm a huge fan of him on It's Always Sunny, which is still alive and thriving and doing great. And it's uh, arguably one of the better seasons in a minute uh, that's currently on. And Jay Baruchel, who I've always felt is very been, uh, he's been too ridiculed in the past. I always thought he was a very relatable, empathetic actor. And he's also been like a great underrated talent in terms of comedy. And he turns in his most well-rounded dramatic performance uh, ever. So, yeah, I highly recommend Blackberry if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, Blackberry and How to Blow Up a Pipeline, both movies that I have not gotten a chance to watch yet, but are on my list for sure. So now my five through four. Uh, my number five, probably my most con – so you got your flashback, and here's my most controversial choice, uh, probably because I'm possibly the only person to see this movie that's like this. My number five is Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid, the movie that finally helped me understand who Ari Aster is as a person and Ari Aster is as a filmmaker. I felt like Hereditary and Midsommar were my two biggest problems with those movies is they were too restrictive. I think they kind of put Ari Aster in a box and didn't fully – like help us get to know who he really was as a person and this movie is absolutely everything that I could have possibly wanted from him this movie is an absolute farce it's completely making fun of the fact of, of like you know people's anxiety and specifically you know people who are uh, hamstricken by their issues uh, with their mothers and this is just him fully unhinged does this movie necessarily have a point no does it actually understand like what makes a comedy not at all but it is just an absolute joyride from start to finish and just the ridiculous over the top moments of this movie oh man this movie goes over the top like no other movie you will ever see this movie uh, it, uh, includes such scenes as a gigantic a penis shaped object getting stabbed um you have parker posey getting literally frozen mid-sex which is one of the best payoffs to a joke that i've 
ever seen. You have a crazy over-the-top stereotype of an over-the-top teenage caricature drinking paint as a means of committing suicide. This movie is absolutely bonkers. You just have you have Joaquin Phoenix giving probably the most Joaquiniest Phoenixiest performance ever, where he is completely like nervous and scared of like for no reason. And you don't almost don't get why. Like because the, the way that Ari Aster because <laughs> the way that Ari Aster films this world is just so good. You're like, nothing that's that's happening here is real. Nothing is ridiculous. Nothing makes sense. But when you understand that it's coming from the very specific way in which someone views the world and that is trying to make light of that, that I think is kind of what a lot of people missed about this movie. Again, it's not for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I went into this movie fully expected to hate it, and I had an absolute blast with it. I One of the more fun times that I had with a movie in theaters this year. My number four is another Tribeca screening that I call Leroy, which has got to be this year's Tell like, me about this, because I'm very movie, much looking forward to it. This movie is just an absolute blast. It's like Fargo meets The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, with a little bit of Pulp Fiction splash in there, where it is just a, a, a bonkers downtown crime comedy. And, well, sorry, uh, with a splash of, it's a mad, mad, mad world in there, where it's a case of mistaken identity in which a briefcase of money is misplaced and given to the wrong person, which then leads to a cacophony of events going off, where you have John McGarrow, who plays an emasculated person getting mistaken for a hired contract killer played by Dylan Baker, who then attempts to enact this ridiculous murder plot um, as a means of proving that he is a man. And that unfortunately leads to a whole chaotic series of events that involves his brother who is sleeping with his wife also draws in Steve Zahn who is a, a attempting to make his way as a private detective it also features a terrifying performance by Dylan Baker with easily one of the most compelling opening scenes of any movie that I've seen in a while I don't want to give away too much because this is one of those movies that like I don't know how much traction it's going to get post Tribeca but like it's definitely one of the more enjoyable experiences that I had so far this year I was laughing I was scared shitless I was feeling bad for these characters it's everything that I want like this year truly is the comeback for like the great crime story and you've got certain other like interesting ones coming out this year like Drive Away Dolls Ethan Cohen's first movie that he's doing by himself I think looks pretty promising um so yeah Leroy for sure uh, definitely up there. Number three, three and two are generic picks, but I don't care because they're two of my favorite movies of the year. They're two of the best times that I had in the theater this year. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. It's everything that I wanted from it. It's everything that James Gunn said it was going to be. It's in a beautiful emotional send-off to these characters. Is it the most tight and concise? No, there's a lot of extra stuff. There's a lot of extra fluff that's thrown in there. But as far as being James Gunn's send-off to his time in Marvel, being James Gunn's send-off to these characters, and and and, and just another kick-ass soundtrack, another kick-ass wild fun ride, that kind of reminds me of the days of the MCU of old. This is everything that I wanted, which leads into my number two, which is kind of, again, if Guardians of the Galaxy is where superhero movies were 10 years ago, then Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is where superhero movies are now. A lot of people, I think, are were, were slightly turned off. And again, it, I, I use that word very, very sparsely because this movie is almost universally being praised as the best movie of the year. I think it's like still crushing it at the box office like almost a month after its release. And the thing about it is that this movie, is it's held back by the fact that it's a part one of two. And that causes a lot of the plot lines that they introduce to kind of feel unresolved because this movie introduces a lot of stuff. It is the longest American animated movie ever produced. The amount of textures and styles that are thrown into this movie. This movie is artistically looking one of the most beautiful movies in a while while still maintaining a lot of that like great underlying uh, you know tone about Spider-Man that it is that we love so much. But I think it's held back by the fact that it, it because it is a part one 
and there are a lot of storylines that are introduced and then left purposely on a cliffhanger. For me, it works well, but I know that that may be a detractor for certain other people, especially because there are kind of a lot of plot holes that pop up in this movie as a result of the multiverse stuff and as a, a result of the cliffhanger. Like, I was going over in my head uh, certain of the of, of the, the problems surrounding the Miguel O'Hara, the Spider-Man 2099 character, and certain mm -hmm. flaws that kind of make that character a little bit more problematic than it may seem. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the whole overreaction to me of the uh, oh Gwen Stacy might be trans because of an obscure poster and the fact that her relationship with her dad is supposed to be an allegory for her being trans I'm like why don't you just let it be that it's because she's Spider-Man and because she's carrying a lot of or Spider-Woman or whatever Spider-Wed whatever and like you have to deal with like that 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 you know the, she has to deal with the guilt of losing her best friend why does everything and yes I'm gonna sound like a bigot and I don't care it's like why does everything have to be that way. And, and, to, and I'll tell you, I'll explain why, where the problem for me comes from for that. It's the fact that, that because when you admit, when, 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 when people slap that label on it, it immediately takes away from the artistic intent, the relatable, the human aspect that we can all universally relate to rather than just slapping a label on it. I don't care if I just sounded anti-trans. Uh, throw me in with J.K. Rowling. I don't care. Um, I don't hate trans people, but that, that is why I love Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. It's just on an animation level. This movie is doing things that I didn't even know were possible to do on an animation medium. So yeah, Great. moving Great into, yeah. yeah, our number ones, respective favorite movies of the year. All right. Your number, movie. my number one is a directorial debut. I saw it at virtual Sundance, Dominic. It's still my favorite movie since January. It's theater camp. Yes. Very, very good. It's like a mockumentary throwback film uh, to like the Christopher Guest movies. And it's about this uh, theater camp that's in upstate New York, not Poughkeepsie. I don't know. Oh. Where, but uh, it's uh, really fucking funny and really charming. And uh, really one of the movies that I wanted to watch immediately after I saw it again, you know. And it's it's really good. It's directed by uh, a co-directed by Molly Gordon, who's an actress who we just talked about on The Bear. And yes. she turns in her best work in front of and behind the camera here. She, her and Ben Platt play this uh, this duo at a theater camp that they work together and they work on everything. They work on a play and everything. And Ben Platt, I know he gets a lot of shit for Dear Evan Hansen, but he turns in his funniest and best performance yet. And it's it, it's about time because I never really liked him, especially in Pitch Perfect where he played that dumb singing magician. But uh, bad movie, Pitch Perfect. Uh, you people were all wrong about that movie. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, bad movie. Uh, ben Platt's very good at it. Jimmy Tatro obviously is just hilarious. Like yeah. he's really well, becoming he like, reliable. Funny? Yeah, he's really become reliable as yeah. fuck ever since American Vandal. Like he's fucking hilarious. Oh, see, I would go even further. Even though he had a tiny part, like that bit part that he had with his intro in 22 Jump Street was hilarious. 22 Jump like, Street was good, yeah. Great, yeah. great. I'm sorry, I, I, I still like it more than 21 Jump Street, but uh, that's just me. Um, What's it called? Yeah. My, yeah, my, um, yeah, Theater Camp. That comes out in a couple weeks. I'm seeing that this yeah. week. Yeah, and uh, Noah Gal, I wasn't done. And Noah Galvin uh, is fucking hilarious. This is his best performance, uh, okay. for sure. Okay. Definitely. Like, he's hilarious. Already iconic in this. And, like, I don't want to give away a bunch of the quotes, but it just has a great heart. It's consistently funny, and it's close to a nine. That's right. I haven't given wow. a nine out of ten this year. Uh, but it's very good. This and Blackberry are the two standout best films of the year, for sure. Yeah, I am i can't wait to see BlackBerry. I'm really excited to see this when it comes out the same weekend that Mission Impossible comes out. My number one of the year is a movie that nobody has heard of. I'll be surprised if anybody hears of this. This is one of the virtual uh, – this is the 
my only virtual screening for Tribeca this year. And I will say that while this movie is not a perfect movie, this movie is probably not going to be on a lot of people's lists. I'll be surprised if it makes anybody's list. Well, if it comes out, if it comes out. The, the, this movie for me is number one because it just had such a visceral reaction for me personally. Like me personally, seeing what happened in this movie, this kind of weirdly coincided with an event that happened like a, almost like a week prior to me watching this. That like and just watching this movie, I was just transfixed. And uh, no other movie had an effect on me like this movie did. And I, it, I'll, I'll be interested to see if any other movie that comes out this year has an effect on me just given how few movies come out that have this kind of effect on me. And that's a movie called The Line written and directed by Ethan Berger, that uh, details the events that happen uh, for a fictionalized fraternity at a big-name college and all of the... It's basically detailed like all of the toxic habits that happen in fraternities of this size that are protected by alumni that have this kind of money and a certain disastrous event that happens uh, near the end. I think the tension building with this movie is so pitch-perfect. I think the acting is so stellar from everybody involved, from Alex Wolf, from Lewis Pullman, from Bo Mitchell, all of whom I have uh, personally nominated, as well as uh, our, our, our um, what's called, as well as, uh, you know, our Euphoria alumni, uh, Angus Cloud, who strangely looks younger in this movie than he does in Euphoria. I don't know if that's like a makeup thing or well, whatnot. Well, they shaved him, I think. Yeah, he but this movie him. was just so visceral. It was scary how viscerally this, this uh, so a little bit from that. I did join a fraternity in college, not a national, not to this level, not even close. And the thing that I will say is that the, 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 this most I heard some horror stories about certain things that national fraternities did to their to, to their pledges, the the you know who they would get to join them. And this movie just putting that on front display for the whole world to see and just owning up to it, not backing down from it at all. It was like this movie, like. To, to, to say that this is a horror movie, I don't think does this movie enough justice because in terms of just how accurately it depicts um, like, like that type of uh, that, that type of that essentially this, this cult like mentality that fraternities uh, of that level uh, foster and develop is absolutely insane and accurate like to a T. So for me, and not to mention, this is probably the best performance that I may have ever seen from Alex Wolf. Like, like Alex Wolf is somebody who's really been evolving as a performer since his Naked Brothers days. But this is really what solidifies me for him. I, I know you're more of a Nat Wolf guy, and I definitely understand why. But for me, I'm telling you, I think this might give the, the slight edge to Alex for me personally. You know, like, like it'll probably go right back to Nat once I see him in another thing. But like, oh man, this is this movie was just next level for me, and I heavily recommend. I want to talk, but he was it. able to watch it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. To me, I feel like this movie doesn't do uh, the whole hazing thing as well as another movie uh, did, like Goat, that came out a few years ago that uh, co-starred uh, Nick Jonas, and it starred Ben Schnetzer and James Franco and Jake Picking. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely not as visceral as that movie. To me, it's more of a character study, this movie. And Alex Wolf definitely disappears in this uh, performance. Yes. He has a completely different voice, and I was very impressed by it. I just feel like the movie itself kind of underserves him and his cast because of how typical some of the hazing stuff was. Because the movie it wasn't really about hazing. It really becomes about hazing in like the last 20, 25 minutes, well, if that it- so, it's yeah, it's really like a buildup to, like, that one incident. And the Halle Bailey character just gets lost in the shuffle. She doesn't really play that big of a part. I thought it was kind of silly that she had to be there only for him to realize, like, 
oh yeah, the fraternity diam is kind of bad. But like, I don't think he she needed to be there for him to realize that. You know what I mean? I feel like yeah. the movie could have done that without her character. But uh, yeah, Bo Mitchell was kind of underserved. He was fantastic. Austin Abrams was terrific yes. in this and really shines. Another Euphoria alumni. Yeah, he's he's always been terrific. That kid and. Yeah, Angus Cloud is well used. I would have liked to see a little bit more of Lewis Pullman, who's impressed me every time I've seen him. One of my favorite parts of Top Gun Maverick. And yeah, I just don't... I, I wish I loved this movie because the first like 40 minutes, I was like, I'm really interested in digging this uh, movie. It has some really good uh, you know songs in it. It has the blue song. It drops the blue, I'm blue, I'm buddy, 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 like yeah. 40 times, which is funny. But it has one of my favorite Project uh, Project Pack songs ever too in, in the background of one scene. But like, yeah, I just feel like this needed to be a little crazier. And and, and it wasn't really about hazing like the right. uh, uh, like the synopsis. Well, just in suggests. terms of it It's being... about, like, the guy. It's right. about the character that Alex Wolf plays. And, and I guess that's kind of where I, 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 I got more locked into it. Because you're right. It's not about hazing. It's more so about, like, the, mental, the, the type of mentality that goes into hazing. And, like, how they split up each of the characters. Like, specifically, how they build up the animosity between the Bo Mitchell and the Austin Abrams characters. And how that comes to a head in that crazy hazing incident so you're right it's not a movie about hazing but in terms of showing like the thought process and toxic masculinity pattern, right and, that and to I, me is where i really foremost, related yeah. to it yeah like like yeah it's obviously like these you're gonna get a bunch of good young actors together to be toxic and shit like it's gonna be entertaining and everything i just don't think there's that much like depth to it other than like oh yeah it's kind of fucked up that austin abrams is saying that to bo mitchell and vice versa like i just don't really i i feel like the movie could have delved way deeper into that and i felt like it focused a little too much on alex wolf's character i agree and what he was going through it, it should have been more of a true ensemble especially yes. with that See, that, uh, that, that, I'll, that i'll give you yeah i feel like the synopsis was definitely underserving what the movie was actually yeah. about you yeah. know and i felt like that was kind of cheating but like i still had a good time with it and i do think this director has promised i just wish i was in love with it yeah, no, I no for sure, and and I get that absolutely. So, with that being said, like I said, this is it is very late. I am tired. I I want to go to bed. But this has been great, Dustin. Thank you again for coming on, and again, just being an absolute trooper, slugging through all this content. We'll be back next weekend for a return to the summer series. We got Indiana Jones next weekend. Yay! Before Dustin and I make our grand reappearance in the month of July to cover I gotta our watch next Last World Crusade. Game I got to for... watch Last Crusade, man. I never saw it. You've never seen Last Crusade? Oh my god! No, I've seen the first scene like twenty times. That's that, that's the one that comes the closest to Raiders for me. There are a lot of people who that's have that. Right here. Indiana. It's um, yeah. phenomenal. I, I watched that movie and i'm like i i loved it raiders is still the best but i think last crusade is my favorite yes raiders definitely is awesome That's raiders hard to beat right yeah raiders the, the, there's a universe I, I, again like spielberg man he knows what he is doing yeah watch last crusade you're gonna love it well yeah but that first scene is dope though. it is uh insane yeah. with with young river phoenix yeah absolutely what, what a talent we were robbed of there so dustin once again where can the good people follow you on the interwebs youtube.com uh, slash mr g movie reviews you can follow me on Letterboxd, Dustin Mason. You can follow me on Twitter, Duster. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. And follow me at Movie Note Reviews across all platforms. Be sure to follow the official Talking TV podcast across all platforms. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter. This episode will be available in a couple hours to listen to on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as always, people, remember, 12 seasons in a short film. I'd watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys Crazy next time. Crazy.